This is part two of Policing in America with Aurora Police Chief Kristen Zeman. If you have not listened to part one, we strongly recommend you do that, as this episode begins immediately where the last episode left off. Welcome to the Leadership Excellence Podcast. There are so many things that impact our ability to achieve success, but none are more important than leadership. Individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. We are here to help you rise. Thank you for joining us. This is the Leadership Excellence Podcast. And so I think it is important for people to understand if they, if they see this violence. You know, the media, unfortunately, creates our reality and creates our perception. And they're driving, the media is driving so many of these problems, right? The, the police have so much to own from our history and from things that happen, right? The, the four officers involved in Minneapolis, uh, you know, especially the, the main officer, he, he needs to own what he did, mm-hmm. right? But, but, but by the same token, like we, we want to work hand in hand with our communities of color to solve these issues. And then this small group of people are, are giving everything this, this, this very bad impression right. when, when, when most of what's happened across our country are peaceful protests. And so much of this is driven by the media. And I hope that one day, and I doubt it, that the media will become more responsible, mm-hmm. right? Because if the media was reporting all the amazing things that are happening at the Aurora Police Department, the Dixon Police Department, the Chicago Police Department, the Seattle Police, you know, all these different departments, then the perception wouldn't be when the police make the national news that we kill people unlawfully and that we target, you know, people of color. Does that happen? Yes. Is one incident too much? Absolutely. But, but the way that this shapes and creates the perception, that's exactly what's happened that has hurt somewhat the Black Lives Matter movement there. The glorification of that when in fact 90, 95% of these protests have all been peaceful. I totally agree. You know, and I'll take this opportunity to say that I believe that there are a lot of good journalists out there that are are seeking the truth and report the truth. But unfortunately, you know, our media conglomerates, you know, it's have become partisan. Uh, But I have a lot of respect for those journalists who, again, report both sides without, you know, without swaying it um, or tainting it in any way. And it's one of the reasons why I, in this department, um, have uh, basically made it our policy that the only truth that you see is coming from from our platforms. So if, you know, media will put out a snippet and as you know, they will put out the snippet, you know, of the angle that they want, um, disregarding the rest. And so, and then, you know, and then basically they, they let people, they kind of force people to draw a conclusion, you know? And so that's why in this department, I have said, release the video from beginning to end. So you can see the entire picture. And if it doesn't come from our social media, one of our platforms, um, then it it is, it is not considered a reliable source. And I stand by that. And that's why I think most police departments, and it goes to marketing, kind of like you said, nobody is going to, nobody clicks on a headline where an officer did a really great thing, which by the way, happens 
every single day, every single day. Every day. And no, that doesn't sell papers. That doesn't, that's not clickbait. No one cares about that. They care about what fits this narrative. And again, the very small percentage, the, the one-off incident, the outliers, but that's what gets played over and over. And so um, I've, I've kind of had enough of that. And so that's why uh, our, my PIO comes from media. He's a, a former journalist um, and he, uh, as he calls it, comes over, he came over to the dark side of, to policing, but you know, he, and, and, and we both agree is that we're putting out our content and sometimes it's you know good bad or indifferent you know i think that this is also another issue in policing is that this concept of blind loyalty the thin blue line means uh, to us, it means, you know, this brother sisterhood, you know, this, you know, the thin blue line is about service, but it also has a negative connotation. The thin blue line is, is also blind loyalty is the concept of, I didn't see that. I didn't see a thing. Right. And that is something as a profession that we need to fix. We need to get away from. And one of the things that I tout to my officers until, uh, I'm sure they're tired of hearing it is that I will stand with you when you are right but I will part with you when you are wrong. And I will stand in front of the podium. And fortunately here, you know, uh, with our training uh, and the skills that our officers had, I have not had to stand at the podium and say, we could have done better today, but that day I know could happen at any moment. And I I've said, I will, I will part with you when you are wrong. And that's what we need to do is unions Union leaders, it's one of the issues I see is unions and arbitration. Um, you know, I've fired several officers who should not be police officers who've gotten their jobs back um, via an arbitrator. And um, that's a problem in our profession. You know, it's, it's difficult to fire people. And so we need our union leaders on board to say, yeah, we don't want that person in our profession. And that's something that I think we need, uh, we need to change. You know, one of the things, so you, you just unpacked so much right there. So, so our values align. Transparency is important to you and you live it. You live transparency. The people of Aurora hear directly from you. You've got an incredible following on, on Facebook and, and in several different platforms. You write blogs. You're, you're an open book on what your thoughts are. Um, you're, you're very forward in your leadership. The, the, what but what you just said, I will stand with you when you are right, when you are right, and I will part with you are wrong when you are wrong. That's leadership, and that's the culture that you have created within your department. That accountability aspect, and the other thing that you unpacked during that, that I think is one of the main things we have to instill in our profession, is that the front line to police misconduct, excessive use of force racism, any other inappropriate behaviors is the police. We have to be the front lines. That street cop that, that comes out of the academy and gets out of FTO has to be rewired that you are the front lines. You Police, if, if you're listening, if you don't like what happens following the unlawful murder of George Floyd, and you don't like these negative incidents, we have to be the front lines. And if we become the front lines, and if things like this are not tolerated, they will not happen. And if they do, they will be on much smaller scale. We won't need the news to report it or somebody to file a complaint because we will have taken care of it and we will have released the information through transparency. 
Retweet. Yes, absolutely. We have to be, we have to be able to police ourselves. We have to. And that is where that blind loyalty has to be completely eradicated. And, and I, this culture that we've created here, and I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of this organization. And even, you know, my union president, we've gone to listening sessions and they, even, even despite our differences and despite, you know, fighting for some officers who I believe should not be police officers, um, we're on the same page when it comes to, you know, making sure that we've created a culture where people can come forward and say, hey, that cop I just worked with, you know, did something um, that that violated both policy or ethics. And our union has done a really great job of protecting that officer who has come forward. So, you know, there is no, you know, not backing them up on a stop. That doesn't, that doesn't fit in our culture. We've also, and that message does have to begin, have to start from the top of what you tolerate. Um, and again, being complicit. And that's where I, you know, kind of go back to just because it says it in your policy, if you don't practice it, then it's completely useless. But we have actually fired a police officer who was not the person committing the excessive force, but he stood by and watched as an officer slammed someone's head against the hood of a car uh, who was handcuffed. And that officer who was standing there was interviewed and he said the, the line, I didn't see anything. And he's right there on camera watching it happen. And we fired him for truthfulness. And so this is this is what you have to set from the top and it has to permeate through the organization. You know, is that is that concept that blind loyalty will not be tolerated and that we have to police ourselves. And by the way, you're doing your peer officer a favor when you step in and you say, hey, you're a little agitated, I'll take it from here. You know, so let's prevent those things from happening before we make headlines, you know, before we make such a grave error. And errors in policing are not like errors as an electrician. You know, if you snip the wrong wire, ah, that's going to cost the company some money. You got to do it all over again. When we make errors, sometimes a heart stops beating. And so that kind of error, you know, we have to, to, we cannot tolerate. And so we have to make sure that our training and our culture and our principles are all aligned with that preservation of life, period. Period. And you said a couple of things there. It's just incredible. I just love listening to you talk about this, your passion, your vision, your insight. And, and officers we're just human beings. We're just people. We have good days. We have bad days. We have to make decisions in split seconds and instants. Look, when, when, when you're punched in the face or kicked in the growing or thrown to the ground, you react like human beings react, right? And, and so I think for, for police, and as we teach people that, hey, we're the front lines, that's not a bad thing. That's going to be maybe taken negatively by some officers like we're we're when you step in and intervene when this human being who is a police officer starts to lose their temper or lose their cool or is having a bad day you are helping them you are preventing incidents from happening right i mean and that's the mindset there's so many different mindset shifts that we have to take there's a couple of things that coming up. And so I came into the profession in 96. Um, and, and I remember specifically in the trainings, I'm and we're seeing shifts in this, but the warrior mentality, yeah. 
versus the guardian mentality, right? The, the overglorification of SWAT and foot chases and fighting people and, and, and those things. The second thing was this philosophy. I remember it in field training, ask, tell, make, <laughs> Major, major problem. We've made a lot of strides in that and our de-escalation and, and our training. But the, the last one, which I think is still too prevalent today, is we have to win. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and not from a side of just winning, but that losing is life or death, right? And so while losing in, in one or 2% of all interactions that police face is life or death, 98% of what we do, losing isn't death. And so we, we can't, our officers can't look at it through that lens. And that all starts with training, sure. as you've talked about, the, the force on force. And so we, we created force on force, live training. It's so much different. And we're, we bought the suits and stuff. We had the interactions, but you've taken that to one, one step above. And I've, I haven't been the police chief now for three years. I'm currently the city manager of Dixon. And I'm going to go back and check to see if our force on force training involves officers walking in and seeing an officer using excessive force or doing something wrong and how they interact because that's so, so powerful. But I think we've got to make sure that these shifts and transitions happen. There's times for us to be warriors they're very limited times. I think I wrote, I, I read a blog you wrote on this. Um, but, but, but guardians can be warriors and protectors and that needs to be the mindset. Your thoughts on that? Absolutely. You know, this is an argument that I get into quite a bit and especially in the community. And as you mentioned, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty out there in the community and on social media and, and I do put my thoughts out there. Love and, it. And, and some of which gets a lot of pushback, which I appreciate because there have been times, you know, where I'm like, wow, I didn't think of it like that. You know, I mean, that's the whole point. Um, I'm certainly not saying I'm right. I'm saying this is my opinion and this is how I formulated it. So the concept of guardian and warriorship, I absolutely believe that police officers should first and foremost be guardians. That's what we're here for, to keep the peace in our community so people can work, live, and play um, and, and feel safe while they're doing it. So 99.9% .9 of, of the work that our officers do day in and day out is about guardianship. And by the way, that still is law enforcement. You know, a guardianship is perhaps writing a ticket for someone who's, you know, going 20 over the speed limit because they're guarding life. You know, when you're speeding, the, the, you have a higher propensity of getting into a car accident, which means, you know, that you may not go home, you know, and so that is still guardianship. So enforcing laws is, is a form of guardianship. It's uh, sometimes it's not well received because when you receive a ticket, you know, it's, 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 you know, it doesn't feel great, but that's still part of guardianship. You know, even making an arrest, you know, a, a lawful arrest is part of guardianship, but we can still do that while treating people with human dignity and respect. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, make two comments of when I'm gonna come back to one, um, which is about outcome. But the, the second point to that is that we are guardians, there is no doubt, but I will absolutely stand firm and I will argue the fact that we also have to have living inside us a warrior mindset. And that is because that we are the first line of defense for our cities. Take yourself to 9-11, the worst terrorist attack that has ever befallen our nation. And black helicopters from the military didn't come from the sky. It was police officers and firefighters that ran in and not only tried to save people, but tried to figure out where the threat was coming from. You know, so is that, is that, is that a warrior? 
Yes, it is. And, um, and I use my own example here in this city, you know, in, on February 15th, 2019 at one twenty-four PM when uh, the call of an active shooter went out that he already shot five people within this factory and the officers responded. Those officers went into warrior mindset and they got shot one after another. And they went through that 300,000 foot warehouse looking for the shooter so he wouldn't hurt anyone else. And again, five of them shot while doing it. You can't tell me that that's not a warrior mindset. So I, I will push back on anyone that says, you know, that, that we shouldn't be warriors because there are some people, a lot of people, how many times do you get the, the, the comment, oh, I could never do what you do. I, I could never run towards that gunfire. Well, there's a reason for that. That's what first responders do. They put themselves in harm's way um, for people they've never even met before. So I will absolutely stand firm with that there has to be a warriorship living inside them. However, warriors with good purpose. And that goes back to what I wanted to say before about outcomes. You're right. We're not playing a win or lose game here. And if you've read Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game, it has nothing to do with policing, but it literally has everything to do with what you just said, is that it's not about winning and losing. It's about the best possible outcome. So when you look at a situation where a person is running away, you know, and, and they're shot, hold on, was that the best possible outcome? You know who they are and, you know, could we be better, you know, in our reactions, you know, and, and again, win or lose means live or die. So is the best possible outcome is that we don't get that person right in that moment, but a life is spared. Well, yes, of course. I mean, it's, it's, it's illogical to think otherwise. So we have to start thinking about the infinite game and what the best possible outcome is. But I will say that we are guardians 99% of the time, but when the defecation hits the oscillation, <laughs> then we have to have that mindset. And that's what, that's what sets first responders apart. You, you are really, you are really awesome. And, and, and you can see why the Aurora police department is looked at as one of the best police departments in the entire country. Um, and it's not just you, I know that, but I firmly, firmly believe, and I'll argue with you on this one, that individuals and organizations rise and fall with leadership. Yeah. Because, because you look at organizations, and I can think of four, I'm not going to call them out on this podcast, on this video, I can, I can think of four different examples where all that changed was the top leader, the CEO, the sheriff, the executive director, right, the city manager, yeah. and everything everything changed. And it wasn't because they were the best thing ever, but they understood leadership. A lot of the things Simon Sinek talks about, mm -hmm. they understand it's about people and they really know how to empower people, give them the tools they need, instill the right values and culture, and then get out of their way and let people do the things that people do, right? Yep. That is the only thing that I will take any credit for is that uh, my recognizing the fact that, you know, that almost everybody in the room is smarter, more tactical. And so I have put the right people in the right position. So I know how to pick a pony. And so I know that, you know, that our, that our SWAT commander who oversaw um, our entire team 
and was the incident commander on the day of our mass shooting, I knew I knew when I first became chief that he needed to be in that position. And I also knew now I've never had, I've never been in a, a tactical trajectory in my career. I've never been on the SWAT team. I've been more community oriented. I was in, you know, in, as an investigator. So I don't know what I don't know. And I'm super comfortable saying I have no idea. And when he came to me and said, we need these tools and this equipment, I said, the only thing that I ask of you is to tell me educate me on what these are. I didn't know what nine bangs were, you know, and, and as it turned out, that's what saved lives that day inside of that factory is it pushed the shooter into a corner just by, by deploying those nine bangs. I didn't know what that was, but I trusted him. I said, just let me know so I can speak intelligently about it when asked, you know, to our city council and why we're spending the money on this. But he is the one that, that, acted that day um, when his skills and talent and ability all came together with his and his team, you know, notwithstanding our patrol officers who had already been trained to handle a mass shooting because we've had that scenario-based training so many times. So it's just putting the right people in the right positions. And to your point, I get the hell out of the way and I just, and then I watch it unfold like a choreographed dance. And then I, of course, have the benefit of going to the podium and saying, you know, this is how they performed that day. They, they rose to the level of not only their training, but their expectations. And so that as a leader, that's the only thing I'll take credit for is putting the, the talented people in, in their positions and empowering them to do what they do best. So I'm speaking with Chief Kristen Zeman of the Aurora, Illinois Police Department. And, and one thing I want to put out there, because we're going to have police officers, community members, different people. We're talking about policing in America, right? And we're talking about solving some of the problems and issues we face. But a lot of the scenarios and the things you've talked about, we want to say to the police, first and foremost, we are huge fans of police. The, the serving as a police officer was the, greatest, was the greatest gift to me and being able to make positive impact and change. And so, so as you listen to this, regardless of, of which side you're on or what, you know, there isn't a side. This is all about how do we make our country better, our communities better, our state better. No, no that one of the things I'm most grateful for is I never had to be in a deadly force encounter. Like police officers hope to never have to be in a deadly force encounter. And the other thing is to bring to life, because these aren't the stories we're seeing on, on the national news, is that in the active shooter situation, February 15th, 2019, 1.24 p.m., that's going to be stamped and Chief Zeman and, and her team's memories forever, the bravery and the courage. Think about five people were, were, were killed during this active shooter. Think about how many people would have lost their lives. Think about the destruction. You know, behind every single death, there is a family, right? And, and think about how many lives would have been lost if it wouldn't have been for the bravery and the courage of these Aurora police officers. The first officer goes in, is shot. The next officer goes in, is shot. The next, not deterred. There was no other way. These men and women are, are putting their lives on the line, willing to trade their life for the lives of others. And, and is this profession perfect? No. Do we have things to work on? Yes. Let, let's acknowledge a lot of positive and incredible things have been done. And across the 18 thousand police departments across this country there are so many great men and women serving us there there are some like as doctors and lawyers and judges like as teachers and nurses 
right? Like, like in all these different, there are some that aren't making the grade. There are some that are racist. There are some that, that there's misconduct. And so what we're talking about today is, is how do we, I mean, we're silly to think we're going to eliminate it from any profession, but how do we continue to reduce it? How do we continue to get better? And how do we continue to take on these problems? So I just want to say loud and clear, we own the history. Chief Zeman and I own the history for the profession and encourage others to do that and understand it. But while, while standing by the brave men and women that are keeping our community safe day in and day out, even if they show up to a house that says defund the police, they're doing their job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the point to drive home here is that, and that's where the, you know, that blind loyalty concept comes from is that, you know, we, we have to recognize, you know, within our profession um, and you mentioned other professions and we have this term that we call them bad apples, right? Is, you know, there's only a few bad apples in the bushel. Well, I just heard former chief uh, Chuck Ramsey uh, say, I thought the most profound thing. And he said, we always talk about the bad apples. We always talk about the bad apples, but what we have to do is figure out um, why those apples are coming from the tree. So they're coming from this tree. So you have to pair the tree, you know, you have to take care and, and consideration into, you know, this tree. And if bad apples are coming from it, you need to figure out why. And that's what it comes down to the most basic and simplistic forms of recruiting, who we bring into this profession, who we allow to put on this uniform and to wear this star. And, and we have to do the very best that we can. We have to do all the work on the front and to put people through psychological tests, you know, through polygraphs, through an extensive background check that goes beyond just calling your four references that you write down who are only going to say good things about you, you know? So our background, you know, we're trying to delve into who this human being is. You know, we look at social media content. All of those things tell me a story about who you are, what you've said, and what you've put out into the universe tells me who you are. And when people show you who they are, believe them. And wow. so, so that is the most simplistic and you're right, it's any profession, um, but we really need to look at law enforcement on who we bring in and we can't take a shortcut um, in recruiting. We have to bring in the best of the best and we have to do our very best to pair that tree. And you're absolutely right, are there going, are there going to be people who slipped through the cracks, maybe, you know, they, they got one over on us or, you know, that we, we didn't figure out exactly who they are. Well, then you have to build in mechanisms in your organization to then, to then get rid of them. And that includes creating policy that you follow, you know, and making sure that when you do try to, to have someone leave the profession, when you're, when a chief tries to terminate someone who is that quote, bad apple, that that termination should stand. And so we have to stand firm, you know, with our, unions and and make sure that we are all in lockstep on getting rid of these bad apples. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a work in progress. And that's where I see this as you asked me what I was passionate about. The answer is policing, uh, police officers, but policing and what it could be. And we have to all come together. And just like, you know, I've heard this analogy about doctors, you know, they call it a practice, you know, because they continually train to get better. And that's exactly what we need to do as a profession. We need to acknowledge that we, that, that good is the enemy of great and that we have a lot of, of great qualities when it comes to the, the aforementioned, you know, running towards things in service, um, you know, in, equity, but we most certainly can get better in our policies and, and, you know, in our processes and our systems. And I think most of that is, is truly the human factor is bringing in that human factor and bringing in empathy, you know, and not hiding behind 
the mirrored sunglasses and attitude, you know, kind of persona that we've come to know that cops are and, you know, and showing who we are as people and being authentic and God forbid, even vulnerable to our community. And I think that's where trust builds as when we see each other as people, when we look at people and not down on them. Wow. You, you, um, you talked earlier about how all of problems in, in society have kind of been guided to and, and directed at the police, right? And there are a lot of problems in our society that end up in some form or another at our front door. And to solve, to solve the, the complex issues in policing, and the things you talked about were homelessness, substance use disorder, mental health issues, you know, those kinds of things to, to solve the issues facing policing is to solve many issues facing our country. And so what, what I say now is, is that to solve these complex issues cannot just fall on the police because when we look at crime, and we dig down, you know, I've got my master's degree from Western Illinois University. Um, I did a bunch of research on crime. And when you control for certain factors, and you look at the disproportionate arrests and imprisonment of black males compared to others. Like the, the underlying factor when you control for variables is poverty. Poverty is a major, major issue. Uh, equal access to quality education, broken family structures, you know, rundown neighborhoods and, and, and geographic areas. Um, there's so many issues and complexities that drive this problem that lead us to these flashpoints. So my thing is we, we can't, everything's been dumped in the police's lap and we agree, Hey, we're not equipped to handle everything, but solving this problem can't be ours alone. And so I ask you, chief Zeman, who are the key stakeholders that we've got to bring together with the police to make this meaningful change that both of us are 100% committed to seeing. And that most, and I say most, of the 18,000 police agencies across our country would be committed to making. Right. And I think that goes back to the Sir, Sir Robert Peel principle of the, the police are the public and the public are the police. And I say that because I believe that it is our community um, that decides you know, what level of policing that they want from us. And what I mean by that is right now people call 911 because of the homeless person, you know, on the street. And we say homelessness is not a crime. Now we can say, you know, move along, but you know, they call us when there is a mental health issue. Um, and so we, we truly are the ones who are responding to these calls. So the stakeholders are, are our community members. They are the ones who need to tell us what they need and want from us. Um, Kristen Zeman's opinion in this is that you cannot completely eradicate uh, police officers. You cannot, you know, the, the, the abolitionists that say, you know, we shouldn't even have police forces and here is why. Um, just a few days ago, I was told on the street that we had a social worker who was dealing with a suicidal subject. And uh, several, um, I think hours into it, the social worker said, 
I'm done. I, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, the person was becoming more violent. And so the police officer was there then to take over. And of course, we're also negotiators, you know, our officers go to, to negotiation school. So they're skilled negotiators on top of being law enforcement officers. And so they were able to bring this incident to a peaceful outcome where no one was injured. Uh, but that social worker said, I, I, I can't do this anymore because people do turn violent. And that is the, that is the ugly part of humanity that people really don't want to, you know, to face is that there are people out there that do bad things to, to other people. I mean, it's just simply the nature of humanity. And it's, you know, it's the dark underbelly of law enforcement is that we see this, this violence that, you know, that, that people, you know, that befalls people. So what I believe is that there has to be a hybrid. I believe that there should be a hybrid of social workers who, who should go in and try to bring that, that situation to a peaceful resolution using their skill and ability. But once then it progresses to a point where, you know, you have to bring us in, then, then we should be at the ready. So I fully, I don't support a one or the other. And I think that that's kind of where we're at right now is defund the police, abolish the police. Let's let social workers and, you know, and other professionals come in and fix this problem. We don't need the police to over-police us until you need the police, you know? And then when you were not there, you know, our social worker is going to come out at three o'clock in the morning when someone is happy, having a violent episode. You know, I, I don't know, but I firmly believe that the solution lies not in, um, you know, in, in the two plus two, it's the two plus two equals five. Honestly, it is this, I think that there's something bigger that, um, that we can come up with, um, that maybe none of us have thought of. And I think for me, the way my mind is going, it is that it's a hybrid of having, you know, mental health and, and specialists come in and, and we're right there with them standing at the ready to protect not only them, but the person, you know, with whom is, is having a crisis. Absolutely. So something that it's easy for somebody to say, so I, I honestly, I maybe laugh is the wrong word, but I, I, when people are like talking about replacing us with, with social workers or mental health professionals, look, the, the reality is the reality is, and it has a lot to do with the fact that there isn't proper funding allocation and those jobs don't pay well, there, there are a lot of issues and problems in the mental health system and the substance use system. So let's unpack this a little bit. So we, there, people may not know this. We, there is nowhere, virtually nowhere for us to send somebody who who is suffering from chronic schizophrenia. Right. It's the reason why the Cook County Jail is the largest mental health institution in the country, right? We go in and, and, and deal with a situation, somebody suffering from schizophrenia, we try to get them help, we make calls, we make calls as the police, the state's attorney's making calls, sometimes judges are making calls, the sheriff's making calls, mental health professionals are making calls, the CEO of a hospital is making calls, and there's nowhere for them to go. You know, we've, we've got a mental health system where, where somebody who's suffering from bipolar disorder is entering a manic episode and the family calls in to try to get an appointment and ask for help. This happened with one of our team members' uh, sons. And she's in talking to me, crying her eyes out because she knows today that they can't involuntarily commit him, but they're going to be in 10 days. Yeah. And so in his appointment, they can't get him in for three weeks, Right. There's a broken system there that isn't ready to support what we need, which is why the police have had to go out 
and, and get all this different specialized training. The other thing on substance use disorder, so we created the second program in the country that puts heroin addicts to treatment instead of jail, and now anybody with substance use disorder to treatment instead of jail, now there's 500 programs across the country. To create that program, we had to go out and get treatment partners with 10 different agencies. The closest one is an hour away. Most are two and a half hours away. And before we did that, even if we called as the police, we would get put on two-week waiting periods. Well, when somebody comes in and asks for, for, for help for substance use disorder, that, that's a moment in time. They might not be ready in five or six hours or tomorrow. And so I think they're just, I just want to bring an awareness and understanding that, that these systems, and the reason all this falls on the police is because these systems aren't strong enough. There's incredible, incredible people in them, the hearts of these people and the, and the intentions, but there isn't capacity. Mm-hmm. And so to just simply say this stuff, like for me, I'm like, well, this doesn't even make sense because we can't even get this one person to where they need to go. We've got to put them in jail um, because they've committed a crime because that's the only place they're actually safe. So it's a major, major issue. You've had the similar experiences, right? Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so that's why, you know, we go back to the defund the police. Well, it, I, whoever coined that phrase um, should obviously does not have a marketing degree. It's, it's terrible um, because, it, you know, it's, the, it, it, again, such a negative connotation about defunding policing when when really it should be let's, let's fund social services, let's fund hospitals so that we the police don't have to intercede, uh, you know, where we are, are, we really shouldn't, you know, and I was going to say where we're not trained, but the fact is we've had to become we are trained, trained now, yeah. all of these things. Yeah. I mean, so it, 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 before we weren't, but now we were, we're using a lot of our money and resources and training officers on how to deal with mental health issues and how to respond to these situations. And, and you're absolutely right. There is a gap and that the only only person to call is 911 because you're right. That's where they're safe. And so you want to talk about funding and stakeholders, you know, first of all, pay social workers and DCFS workers and, you know, all of, uh, of, of substance abuse counselors, all of the people um, who have entered into such a, a service profession, um, pay them more. Uh, so you attract more people to the profession and then give them facilities and give them resources so they can deal with these issues so we're not looking at it getting to the point where the police have to be called in. So it's all about preventative measures. So if people truly wanted or had, you know, wanted to solve this problem, then we need to delve into these problems and then provide resources there. It's, I, I don't know, sometimes I feel like, I, sometimes I feel like I oversimplify things or, you know, like I have three eyes is that it's not that difficult to see that, you know, there, there is, there are no stopgap resources in the middle of an episode and nine one one. So let's figure out whatever that mechanism is and let's do it. Yeah. And I think the truth is when we unpack these things, you know, there, is there a need for, for leadership? Is there a need to shift in some places or to strengthen in others cultures and policing? Is there a need for police to be the front lines of misconduct and abuse and authority? All, all those things are true. Um, but as we look at this problem and this issue, if we're going to find real solutions and we just don't want to talk about it, we, we've got to fully understand it. You know, there's things that are going to need to happen at the national and the state level, but they're not going to bail us out. So something that came back to you, who are your stakeholders? They're your community. And mm-hmm. a lot of these issues and problems are going to be solved community by community. And I think that the the international chiefs, and I know the Illinois chiefs as well, are doing a good job with stakeholders like the ACLU, 
and Black Lives Matter and the NAACP uh, involving the faith-based community. We've got to have the support of the elected officials and not just talk in politics, like support and action. Uh, Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Officers. But then, and I believe this, I believe this, we are going to need the help and the support of the media, of the national media, to share what is real. Because we can do all this, but if a tree falls in the woods and it doesn't make a sound, and did it really fall, right? Like these things, and, and one of the things, as we, as we start to wrap up, and you do an amazing job of this, you're one of the most transparent people I know, that, that tell our story. Cops for so long, and I know it's noble, like, well, we don't need to brag about what we do. We don't do our job to receive accolades. Law enforcement leaders listening, you have to tell your story. You have to intentionally tell your story. Tell the good and the bad. Every bad situation uh, is, is a bigger withdrawal than all the deposits. But that's why we just got to continue to make deposit after deposit because those things are happening everywhere. But we've got to do a job of telling our story. And as you said uh, before, like, we're going to share it. We're going to share the whole video. So you're just not getting a headline that wants to shape you this way. And so yeah. so many great things from this conversation. I want to give you a chance to kind of, kind of wrap up. And, and I know we're going to watch this back and think about some other areas I want to talk about or we didn't hit there, but, but for the length of this show, um, you know, what, what are some final thoughts, some parting things that, that, that you want to share? So, you know, I think we find ourselves in, in such a, an obscure time and place in, in, in our, our history, you know, and as we look back on this moment in time, going from literally one crisis to another, you know, from a pandemic to civil unrest, there, there, we cannot waste this opportunity. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is that we have to figure out what this moment in time is trying to teach us. And, and whether we are open to hear the lesson that it is trying to, to provide us. And, and if we aren't listening, as you mentioned earlier, really truly listening to the voices that perhaps you know, have been drowned out, then we're not gonna make any progress. So the very first, the very first thing we need to do is exactly what Chief Cunningham started in, in that moment in when he said, I am sorry. I am deeply and, and just consumingly sorry and mean that. There are three parts to an apology. Uh, we were wrong, I'm sorry, and now what can I do to fix it, right? And again, even if you didn't have a part in that, even if it's not your fault, you're responsible. So the first thing that we have to do is figure out what can we do to fix it? And so that means listening to stories and understanding uh, that just because it didn't happen to you, because you didn't personally experience it, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And we get into a lot of arguments in our department about facts versus feelings, you know, and well, just because someone feels something doesn't mean it's true, except that that's a very powerful antidote to feel something. Uh, and so for sure, facts absolutely matter, but feelings do as well. And we have to be able to balance that and move away from just the facts, ma'am, to, okay, let me try and understand how you're feeling. And so I think our first step um, as we navigate through um, through these waters um, 
is truly to listen to one another and then try to come up with solutions together. And that's why the police cannot do it by themselves. That's why the community has to, to be right there with us, listening to our side as well, listening to what it feels like to be a police officer. And, you know, so we have to start listening sessions. We have to start conversations, whether they're formal or informal. But I think that is where we begin. And then I think police departments who are progressive have these policies in place, but now they'd had better check whether they are following these policies, whether they are walking that talk. And, and then if they don't have the policies in place to get them in place and to start doing the right thing. But our profession needs an upgrade. And I think that the first step is recognizing that even as a police officer and saying, we can be better. You know, we, I got that, I got that tattooed on my arm, be better, be better. Just as a reminder, you know, that, that this is what we as a, as a police department, as a policing uh, profession is that we have to be better, but we have to be willing to listen. So I think that's the first step. And I am, I'm, I'm an, I'm a realist, but you know, with a, with a tinge of optimism in, in me. And I believe that we are going to come out of this stronger together than we were before. And so I think that the only way to do that is use this as an opportunity. Absolutely. The greatest challenges equal the greatest opportunities. Many times the obstacle is the way, the tougher the situation, the farther we got to lean in. And you talk about um, some different things. And the thing that comes to my mind is the value of commitment to excellence. It's a value that I'm driven by. It's a value that drives our police department, drives our city, drives our teams. And we've got to realize that no matter how good of a job we're doing or how great we're doing, the, that excellence is not a destination. Excellence is a place that we can visit from time to time. But there's always room to get better, even if that's 1%. And if you're at that level, you got to be looking for ways to add layers of greatness every single day to get that 1% better. I do want to thank and acknowledge all those people out there who are trying to make a difference and doing so in a peaceful way, coming from a place of love, wanting to make real positive change to, to protesters who are using their voice and to you know the leaders of Black Lives Matter, to the police officers who are showing incredible bravery and courage and who are, who are acting as punching bags you know, in our current environment, but are still going out and answering that call every day, the importance of, of listening, of Covey's fourth habit, seek first to understand then be understood, to be able to separate our professional from our personal, right? When we put on that badge, we do represent an institution um, and to just keep looking for ways to, to make our communities, our state, our country a better place. And I agree with you. I, I believe when we look at the challenges and you look back at all the challenges that have been overcome in the history of our country, that, that, that we will overcome this and we will make strides. We, we've come so far. We have so far to go. Yeah. But, but Chief Kristen Zeman, thank you so much for joining me today. I just cannot thank you enough, all the value you've added to this conversation and the context you brought to policing in America. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I love the discussions. And I think we need to keep them going all over. We do. We do. To our listeners, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google will be on Amazon soon. Um, all the other ones, uh, please subscribe, give us a rating, share that with, with your friends. And remember, always be committed to excellence.